Our sermon text this morning continues on in the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It's printed for you in your bulletin, or if you were not, open it up in your Bible. Go ahead and turn there. Exodus 3, 1 through 10. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he came and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites have reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now grateful for your word, grateful that in it we get a glimpse of you and what you're about, and so a picture of who we are in you. I pray in this morning as you uh, work by your spirit in our hearts that you would point us to Jesus, to love him, to see his majesty and his beauty, and love him all the more. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So life can fly by. There's tons of songs and poems about it, how you blink and life has, has gone by. You blink and 20 years go by. You blink and a kid goes from a baby to a teenager to a full-grown adult. You blink and it happens like that. And that happens here in Exodus. When we meet Moses at the beginning of chapter 2, which we ran a couple of weeks ago, he's a baby. Baby boy born into slavery and in danger for his life. We see him rescued from certain death and adopted into the family of Pharaoh. And then we blink and he's 40 years old. The next verse, he's 40 years old. He's 40. He's lived four decades with everything money can buy. We see him reject that. He throws himself in with the enslaved Israelites and not the empire of Egypt. He becomes a fugitive because of it. And he finds a new home, in a sense, outside the halls of power, in the wilderness of Midian. And remember, we talked about Midian as kind of like Americans fleeing to Canada. It's just right outside the reach of the Egyptian empire at the time. And there he finds a family. And as he says... As a 40-year-old man settling down in that unexpected place, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. That was the last verse that we read last week. Well, we blink again, and he's 80 years old. Right here in this passage, Moses is 80 years old. Now, I think we have pictures of like the Ten Commandments from Charlton Heston, and we were picturing like a strapping middle-aged Moses. No, he is 80 years old right here, an 80-year-old man who has lived the last four decades tending sheep. Here he is an 80-year-old man in the wilderness. And into this life that's going by in the blink of an eye, the snap of a finger, right here in this passage, God breaks him. And something all of his life, all of Moses' life, had been preparing him for, 
And at the same time, nothing could have prepared him for right here in this passage. He encounters God. But it wasn't just a private encounter. This isn't just uh, Moses had this great religious experience for himself. It's recorded for us here. It's written for us here. We're reading it uh, 3,500 years after it happened. And we are invited in this passage to see what Moses experienced, what Moses heard, and to contemplate for what it shows us about who God is. Because this isn't just Moses' thoughts about God. This isn't Moses reflecting on what he thinks God might be like. This is God revealing himself, not just to Moses, but also to us. And what begins here in this passage is God breaking into the reality of our world to win us back to himself. This is God pressing play on the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just to break in to give us a list of facts to believe, but breaking in to free us from all that holds us back. So the question this morning, what does this passage show us about God? I think it shows us four things. And the first one is this, God is free. God is free. Here's what I mean. In the ancient world, there were gods for everything. In Egypt, there was a goddess for childbirth, a goddess for the sky, a god for medicine and healing. There was a, a god of the harvest. There were sun gods and death gods. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of those gods in a couple of months when we get to the plagues. Um, the plagues are actually God declaring war on the gods of Egypt. But we'll get to that. And all these gods in Egypt were seen as powerful. They were real in the minds of the people. But they were entirely predictable. Their concept of who their gods were were these powerful beings that could be figured out how to be used and manipulated. Here's what I mean. These gods were seen to be powerful but in a specific location. Just, you know, they had their, their realm that they hung out with. But if you could figure out how to do the right religious rituals, if you could figure out how to do the right magic spells, in a sense, you could figure out how to get that God to do something for you. It was a formula way of religion. We've talked about it in previous, uh, before, it's this equation way of thinking. That's what was going on in Egypt. If I can do this plus this for this God, then it will equal this. It was this, like, I scratch your back, you scratch mine religion, in a sense. And that's one of the things, I think, that makes this interaction in Exodus 3 so remarkable. Because God appears here to Moses, but notice, Moses is a shepherd. He's not on any pilgrimage to find any God. He's doing the most ordinary thing that he could do, that he's done over these last 40 years. He is tending to sheep. For some reason, he leads the flock to the other side of the wilderness. Maybe he was bored and he just wanted to look at something else <laughs> in the background. But, but Moses is not going to some sacred place. He's not going to some historically important location or some temple. You don't see him doing any like religious rituals. In fact, Horeb here, which the text tells us is the mountain of God, is calling it the mountain of God because of what happens here later on. This is where God, Moses leads the people where they receive the Ten Commandments. So it becomes significant later on. But what does Horeb mean? It means wasteland. It literally means wasteland. So here we have Moses not looking for anything in no place particularly important, just doing his blue-collar job that he's done for four decades. 
And I'm pointing this out because the text is making it abundantly clear right here that what happens next is God's initiative. Moses did not figure out some way to manipulate God to get him to pay attention. God is free. Right here, this is God's initiative. It's the sovereign God and his freedom moving. It is not Moses figuring out the right formula to manipulate a God who can't be trusted like the gods of Egypt. It's the free and sovereign God, not limited by space or time, moving in his freedom, breaking into this wasteland. Not because he was convinced to, not because he was manipulated, not because of anything except for the freedom of his loving mercy and his determination to destroy the power of sin that has marred his world. That is God's motivation right here. So God is free. That's the first thing we learn in this passage. And the second one is this. God reveals, God shows himself. With God's freedom, God takes the decisive movement. He does not remain hidden. He reveals himself. Notice that God doesn't just stand from a distance and move pieces like on a chessboard. He doesn't remain far off. He doesn't even just pop in and do some stuff and disappears. I think sometimes we can think of God almost like Batman. Like something bad's happening, we're going to pray, pop in and fix the thing, and he'll, he'll, he'll jump out and he'll go away before he notice he's there. I said that for you, John, because I know you love, you know, you love that. No, right here, what we see is God revealing himself. Not just doing some stuff, but coming in to show himself. God's goal is revealing himself so that his people will know will know him. The remarkable thing about God revealing himself in this passage is how he does it. It's one of the most iconic pictures of the Bible, the burning bush that does not burn up. And that's utterly supernatural, right? We've never seen a bush burning that doesn't burn up. But at the same time, even though it's utterly supernatural, notice that how God does this. He's using very ordinary things. Bushes in the wilderness and fire. That was things that were incredibly common to Moses. Moses didn't look over and say something he couldn't uh, make heads or tails of. God had used something ordinary, this bush and this fire. He used something ordinary and set it apart to use in his extraordinary way. A bush burning with fire but not being burned up. Now in our world, we've seen fire. And every fire we know depends on something to fuel it. It needs a fuel source, right? Wildfires break out because dry kindling is everywhere in drought seasons and they can't control it. It's suddenly just burning everything up inside. Fire requires a continued feeding where it burns out. And what Moses saw was a fire that didn't need anything else to keep it burning. And what's that telling us? I think it's telling us this. God doesn't depend on anything outside of himself. God is like a fire in that he's alive. But it requires nothing else for his existence to continue. His fire burns, period. It's God here in, in using this bush and this flame as not burning up. It is God using something ordinary to reveal something extraordinary about himself. That idea of God using something ordinary to reveal something extraordinary is true the language that God uses. Notice God interacts with Moses here and he's speaking in a language Moses can understand. God doesn't speak Hebrew. That's not his like native language. <laughs> God doesn't speak Hebrew. 
But God is speaking to Moses here in a way that he understands. Think of the, trans- the, the significance. The transcendent and free God condescends to make Moses his conversation partner. And God doesn't speak some language Moses can't comprehend. He speaks to Moses. Of course, human language falls short. God is transcendent, and all the words in the world could not come close to fully explaining him. But God still uses these partial things to show himself to us because his desire is that we know him. We know him. We can't comprehend him in his fullness, but we can know him truly because he's made himself known. The free God who uses his freedom uses it in a way to join us to himself, that he might be our God and we might be his people, that we might know him. The using of ordinary to communicate his extraordinary grace isn't something that God just does here in Exodus 3. In a sense, that's exactly what the Bible is. You pick up your Bible, it's the word of God. It's God's communication to us of who he is and what he's about. It's without error and it's true. But notice the Bible is not written in some otherworldly language. Now, we can read like the King James Bible, and it sounds very poetic and Shakespearean, almost older English, these thou's, and ways we don't communicate. But when the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, uh, it was incredibly ordinary language. In fact, some of the letters of uh, Peter, for instance, break all kinds of grammatical rules. When God works to reveal himself in Scripture, He doesn't use high language. He doesn't use something that we can't understand. He gives it in ordinary human language, not written to academics, given to all of us, because he wants us to know him. That's what his revelation is, showing himself so that we might know him. In fact, John Calvin, the the reformer, um, he likened the Bible to God, uh, like we use... uh, Kind of we babble to communicate with babies. Babies can't quite understand language yet. John Calvin said scripture. It's like God condescending to speak to us like we do babies. So we can truly communicate with. He's not speaking above our heads so we don't uh, know what's going on. His goal is that we know him. Ordinary words, ordinary writers set apart by God to communicate his word. Or not just think of Scripture, think of Jesus. When God takes on flesh to become one of us, how does he arrive? He doesn't show up as Superman, impervious. He doesn't show up in a human nature that can fly and doesn't need to sleep or eat. He shows up in an ordinary human nature just like ours. He comes as a baby. He grows. He learns. He lives an ordinary life. But that ordinary life is the human life of the Son of God who came to live in his ordinary life all that we've lost in our ordinary lives. So the God who is free reveals himself to Moses. And what's this extraordinary thing that's revealed? It is that God is holy. God is holy. That is a key word in all of Scripture, holy. Now, holiness is an interesting concept. It's a pretty common word, Though I think in our world, at least in in mine, it tends to have like a negative concept when we use it. Um, When we call, for instance, if we if you call somebody holier than thou, it's not a compliment. You know, you say somebody they're they're holier than thou. They're that's somebody who thinks they're the best thing, and then look down on other people. That's not a positive concept. 
And I think holy can be a scary word, especially if you have uh, much background in a religious world, a religious environment. It, holy can become this word that's loaded with negative feeling and negative meaning. But like all the words we use to describe God, I think it's important that we don't just use the words, that we allow God to define the words for us and not the other way around. What I mean is we don't look around and figure out what we think holy means and then transfer it onto God without stopping to ask, wait, is this what God means when he says that he's holy? We allow God to define the words. So how does the Bible describe so holiness is a word that carries with it a couple of different angles. One is the idea of clean, cleanliness, so like a, like, a, like a purity, something that holy is clean, is unstained. Another idea is the concept of uh, separateness, something that is holy is something that's set apart from ordinary for some special use or some sacred use. It's different. And another angle is the idea of beauty, something that is holy is uniquely beautiful. And all these come to play and, and come together when we talk about God being holy. God is the creator and we are his creation. He's beyond all our categories. He's pure. He's separate. He's beautiful and perfect. Now it's important though, and this is something that I think uh, we can say holy, God is holy. And we can translate it in our brain as God is unapproachable. God is holy, it means he's far off. I think we can say holiness and that's what we mean. Not just separate, but unapproachable. Not just clean, but unbothered by dirty and wrong. Not just beautiful, but disregarding of that which doesn't meet his standard of beauty and goodness. God is holy. He's clean, he's pure, he's transcendent, he's beautiful. But just like the way his freedom is one that he uses not to remain far off, but to reveal his holiness is one that, is that, that does not keep him distant. His holiness is a fellowship-creating holiness. It's relationship-creating holiness. And that draws me to my last point. The holy God makes holy. The holy God makes holy. Here's what I mean. The holy God here appears to God and appears to Moses in a burning bush. Um... But it's not like an atomic bomb goes off and there's a crater. And maybe there should be. Maybe when the holy God who is unstained and, and pure arrives into our sinful world, it should be like a bomb going off. But what does the presence of the holy God do right here in this passage? Notice in verse 5. God tells Moses to take his sandals off and to not come any closer because why? The place you are standing is holy ground. Here's why this is significant. If you look back at Genesis 3, the entrance of sin into our world, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, what happens? The very ground of this earth is cursed. And this is an idea that flows through the Old Testament. When you get to Leviticus and it starts talking about clean and unclean animals, a lot of the times the thing that symbolically makes them unclean is the animals that have a closer connection to the ground. It's like this big object lesson that God had worked into their religion. This idea, the ground is cursed because of man's sin. Sin has cursed the very ground we walk on. This big, it's this big object lesson to show the seriousness and the depth of what sin is. 
And here, so why I'm pointing this out here, when God appears, what does he do to the ground around him? He makes it holy. His holiness creates holiness. It's almost like God's holiness is a nuclear power radiating out. But instead of poisoning, it's a power that cleanses. It's a power, it's a beauty that emanates and makes beautiful. It's a purity that radiates out and makes pure. It's a cleanness that makes clean. Now, of course, that doesn't happen automatically. It's not like God shows up and everything around him. It's not like uh, King Midas. You know, King Midas was cursed to everything he touched turned to gold, and it was a terrible thing, actually, for him. It's not like that. It doesn't happen automatically. In fact, in, in Scripture, uh, in the book of Exodus even, we see numerous people who respond to the holiness of God with resistance. We see that with Pharaoh, for instance. When Moses confronts Pharaoh and says, let the people of Israel go, Pharaoh resists. And in those cases, the holiness of God means judgment. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh hardens his heart to persist in his oppression and his ugliness, but it cannot stand it. Because when God arrives, the ground is made holy. When God arrives, the unholiness cannot stand. When the free God arrives, the slavery of Egypt cannot continue. It must be judged and dealt with. But for Moses, for all who come to God by faith, leaning upon His grace, His holiness means that we are made holy. It means that as sure as God is holy, we will be made. And that's profound good news. As sure as God is clean, we will be made clean. As sure as He is free, we will be free. We as human beings were meant to be like mirrors that reflect God. That's what it means to say we're the image of God. His beauty, His glory, His holiness. We are designed to live in the radiance of that and in turn to turn around and reflect it out. We are made to behold God and to become like what we behold. The reality of sin and what it's done means that not only is the ground cursed, but that this basic reality of what makes us truly human has been marred. So we're designed to reflect this God, but we're like shattered mirrors that only do it in partial and broken ways. And we still become like what we behold, but sin has meant that we turn to other things instead of God. And we become shaped and formed by those things we return to. In our culture, people turn toward money or success and it, it warps their hearts because we become like what we behold. And when that happens, the holiness of God, His beauty, His glory, it becomes a threat. It becomes a threat. But if anything is ever going to be made right, something has to be done. Or we're just going to keep holding things that twist us and mar us into destruction. And we're only going to see God as a threat. The good news, friends, in this passage this morning is that God is doing just that. That's what he's saying in verse 6 when he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, this holy God, who has stretched the bounds of all that Moses has ever known before in this moment tells Moses that his radiating holiness is not something that has come to destroy Moses. But just like this ground here 
is holy because God's presence is there. It is making the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob holy. God is breaking into this world seemingly lost to sin and frustration, and he is breaking in to win back his people. In verses 6 and 7, the free holy God reveals himself as their God. Notice verse 7, he says it explicitly. I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them. I am concerned about their suffering. So what has God done? I have come down to rescue. Friends, God's holiness here is not something that creates distance. And if you take away anything from this sermon, take that away. God reveals himself as the Holy One in their midst. Or as we said in our call to worship from Isaiah 12, Great is the Holy One of Israel among you. The Holy One who in His holiness, uh, the Holy One in His holiness abides with them. He is making them holy. He is rescuing them from the reality of this broken world, rescuing them in verse 8 from the pain and oppression of Egyptian slavery that treats them as little more than cattle, rescuing them from a list of nations in verse 8, those people's names that I read out that we don't know who they are because <laughs> they don't exist anymore. They aren't Egypt, but that's looking forward. Those are kingdoms full of wickedness. Canaanite people who have built a harsh and a wicked society. And God is saying, I've come down to rescue. I'm making you my holy people. And the current slavery that you uh, are suffering other, under and the other nations that seem so powerful, that will not be your destiny. I am the free God and I will have a free people. That is what he is saying. Now we learn more as we go, as God continues to reveal himself and his freedom, as he continues to act on his people's behalf. And as always, God's actions in history are steps in the plan that rescue, that works out to rescue from the chains of oppressors, yes, but also from the chains that hold us bound inside. Now our passage today is not the last time God would appear to shepherds in a wasteland and announce good news. That's what he did to Moses here. The shepherd in a wasteland, God appears seemingly out of nowhere to announce that he is on the move. But you might know the story that we read at Christmas from Luke 2. Shepherds living out in the fields, watching their flocks by night, and the angel of the Lord appears to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. And the angel said to them, what? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, a Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The good news this morning, friends, is that in Jesus we can know that we are those on whom the favor of God and his peace rests. We are those that don't have to be afraid of our holy God. Because his holiness is not meant to squash us. His holiness is a fellowship creating holiness, a relationship creating holiness. We don't have to be afraid of our holy God because he has removed in Jesus everything that stands in the way of us being won back to him and being made holy. 
in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all the sin, all the unholiness, all the ugliness of this world in our hearts has been gutted of its power, where every sin has been paid for. And what remains is this. This is what remains. The free God who has not been manipulated or tricked into loving you, but the free God who uses his freedom to make you holy. And from the root of that incredible love, he is growing us in that holiness. He is turning us from our selfishness to be people who value what he values and love what he loves. So friends, this morning, hear his voice calling to you. And not the call to Moses, who saw this and he said, take off your sandals and don't come any closer. Because in Jesus, the call to us is this, to flee to him who is our father, who has won us to himself. Come to him and find yourselves holy by his grace.